This is the Raising Freethinkers podcast. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Raising Freethinkers and Parenting Beyond Belief, books for raising compassionate, curious kids without religion. Episode 38, Rescuing the Word Privilege for Our Kids. I was a 31-year-old liberal white male college professor when I first heard the phrase white privilege. I'd started teaching a new interdisciplinary course at the College of St. Catherine, a women's college in St. Paul, Minnesota, and one of the texts in the course reader was a five-page essay called White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. It had been written five years earlier by the feminist scholar Peggy McIntosh. This was the essay that brought the term white privilege into broader awareness. Not that the concept itself was new. As far back as the 1930s, W.E.B. Du Bois was describing the, quote, psychological wage paid by society that allowed poor whites to feel superior to poor blacks. Civil rights activists in the 1960s had even used the phrase white skin privilege. But it wasn't until Macintosh that this concept reached a wider audience, including me. It's not that the differential power and opportunity between white males like me and pretty much everybody else was new to me. I was an anthropology major at Berkeley. My emphasis in the major was evolution, but all anthro majors get a broad grounding in cultural anthropology as well. And the readings and discussions and several phenomenal professors radically overturned my understanding of the world in terms of race and culture and gender. It was disorienting in the best possible way. So when I was handed the Macintosh essay eight years later and asked to teach from it, I was already receptive. I understood that racial oppression was insidious in this country and still very real. But at the top of the essay was a pull quote that rang my head like a bell. It said, I was taught to see racism only in individual acts of meanness, not in invisible systems conferring dominance on my group. That was the first of several thunderbolts in the essay. She was also describing my own education about racism, not at Berkeley, but younger, growing up. I definitely grew up seeing racism as hate in individual hearts, as a toxic attitude that was learned. And if only it could be unlearned, if only each person could be shown that racism is bad, that it doesn't make sense, that we're more alike than different, then everything would be okay. The slave traders, the Jim Crow politicians, the white antagonists screaming at black protesters at lunch counters in Greensboro, Bull Connor in the fire hoses, apartheid in South Africa, James Earl Ray. If only we could get that hate out of all those separate hearts, racism would be over. It's a cartoon. One taught by well-meaning parents and teachers and after-school television specials. Even the deep disruption that my mind underwent at Berkeley hadn't really fully dislodged that simplistic concept of racism. It didn't get me seeing the systemic nature of it. It took one crystal clear five-page essay to do that.
McIntosh wrote, I think whites are carefully taught not to recognize white privilege, as males are taught not to recognize male privilege. I have come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets that I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. There's so much in those two sentences, that our own privilege is invisible to us, that it's unearned, and that it confers daily benefits. This is the simple definition of privilege. It's an unearned advantage over someone else. Saying someone is privileged is not a condemnation. And that's vital to the transformative power of the concept. My privilege as a white male isn't the result of something I did wrong. It's the result of social systems built over the course of centuries. Those systems are conferring privileges on me even if I don't want them. So having privilege isn't the issue. It's when I fail to recognize my own privilege and the way that privilege makes my life easier, makes my challenges fewer than someone who lacks those privileges. Failing to acknowledge that is where I bear responsibility. Now, the bulk of the Knapsack essay is a list of 50 social benefits Macintosh derives from being white, 50 things that she doesn't even have to think about as a white person, things she can simply count on that her friends and colleagues of color cannot count on. A few examples. Number three, if I need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area which I can afford and in which I would want to live. Number five, I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. Number six, I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. Number 18, I can swear or dress in secondhand clothes or not answer letters without having people attribute these choices to the bad morals, the poverty, or the illiteracy of my race. Number 21, I am never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. Number 30, if I declare there is a racial issue at hand, or there isn't a racial issue at hand, my race will lend me more credibility for either position than a person of color will have. Number 39, I can be late to a meeting without having the lateness reflect on my race. And on it goes. She explains that these privileges were not obvious to her at first in the way that, as a woman and a feminist scholar, male privilege was blindingly obvious to her. And she used that obviousness to lead herself to an understanding of her own, more invisible privileges as a white person. While a list of male privileges would have been easy for her to retain, she said, quote, I repeatedly forgot each of the realizations on this list until I wrote them down. For me, white privilege has turned out to be an elusive and fugitive subject. That invisibility? That's exactly the point. Since then, I've gone further into the topic in books like Ijoma Oluo's So You Want to Talk About Race. The longest chapter of that book is a deep dive into privilege. If you read only one chapter of that book, don't read only one chapter of that stunning book. Read the whole thing. But hypothetically, if you did, chapter four would be the one to read. Oluo talks about how the focus on changing individual hearts distracts from addressing the systemic nature of racism. 
And like Macintosh examining her white privilege, Oluo uses examples of her own relative privilege in the black community, including privileges that led to her college degree and the benefits that flowed from that degree, as a powerful example of checking your privilege. But it was the Macintosh essay that opened me up to read the more in-depth work of Oluo and many others. And I know that was true for hundreds of students who read it in my classes over the years. It pried loose the simplistic conceptions of race and racism that kept us from engaging it in a more meaningful way. But there's an irony in that, one that might have escaped even Peggy McIntosh. When she was asked in a New Yorker interview in 2014 why her paper attracted so much attention, even though the topic in similar terms had been present in discourse for 50 years, McIntosh said, I think it was because nobody else was writing so personally and giving such clear examples drawn from personal experience, which allowed readers to understand this rather complicated subject without feeling accused. Now, I do think the personal angle was a big part of its success. But she missed another very likely possibility, that her work reached me and my students because of white privilege. It's probably not a coincidence that hers was the first prominent white voice articulating the concept and the one that was finally heard. But right here is where the concept of privilege can go off the rails. If Macintosh heard it suggested that her essay on white privilege benefited from white privilege, I'm pretty sure that she'd grant that without hesitation. And maybe she already has in other interviews, I don't know. But the reason I'm so sure is the last clause in her quote. She said that the essay, quote, allowed readers to understand this rather complicated subject without feeling accused. That is a huge part of why privilege was a breakthrough concept, the breakthrough concept, the most promising catalyst I had ever seen in discourse about race and gender and a dozen other issues. You don't acquire privilege because of something you did. It is unearned. Privilege is separate from advantages that I gained through my efforts. I didn't ask for the daily privileges I have as a white male. I don't want them. But I have them anyway. I can't wish them away. They are granted to me by the systems built into our culture, whether I want them or not. Now, because privilege is conferred, unbidden from the outside, by the culture, it is daft to level it as an accusation. The problem is not being privileged. The problem is when we fail to acknowledge our privilege. That is the breakthrough. That's the power. It's not an accusation. That's what made it possible for people of privilege to finally look directly at the privilege differential and, well, first of all, to get a first glimmer of what it might be like to live without those privileges, and then to assist in the work of changing the systems that confer and perpetuate unearned privilege. But in the years since the concept gained a foothold, the word privilege has been stripped of the main quality that made it a breakthrough. Privilege has been turned into an epithet. And that was done not by conservatives mostly, but by my team, progressives. We did that. Watching us destroy this word has been an embittering experience. It's one of the things that made me realize what I'd heard and rejected for years, that we can be just as foolish and self-defeating as conservatives. Now, if that sounds like both sides-ism, I understand. That's what I thought for years, too. 
Now, I don't remember the first time I heard privileged hissed at someone, but I remember it was in a list of epithets, something like, I'm not going to sit here and listen to this racist, ignorant, privileged man. And I had the feeling of the protagonist in an action film diving in slow motion to push the child out of the path of a locomotive while shouting, No! I had felt what it did for me. I had seen that light blinking on in the eyes of hundreds of students over the years. And then to hear it turned around, to hear it turned into an epithet was just too much. And then I saw it again and again. I saw privileged, used, interchangeably with racist. It's not the privilege itself, but failing to acknowledge our privilege. That's where our personal responsibility comes into it. But we make that acknowledgement pretty much impossible when we make privilege into an accusation. Now, I know the next step is often to ridicule the idea that we have to tiptoe into the conversation by presenting it in just the right way. Doesn't matter how we present it, how carefully, some people will just refuse to listen. That's their problem. Just tell the truth. You know, not to keep trashing my own tribe, but that's another of our doctrines that I could do without. That being right is enough. It's not enough. It's never enough. Emotion and reaction are woven into our heads every bit as much as reason. There are simple, time-tested ways of preparing the listener to be receptive to an idea. Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication is pretty much all about that. And opening with an accusation, especially a false one, like privilege as accusation, is not a good way to get your second sentence heard. And I want that second sentence heard. Second sentences are where a lot of change begins. It's been years now since I lost most of my hope that the concept of privilege could be recovered. It's just so far gone now. But my heart broke in a whole new way when I saw one of my kids, one of my very progressive kids, wince at the term white privilege. Now, as a parent, it's a good idea not to overreact in moments like that. Again, you won't get a second sentence if you do. And sure enough, as it turns out, it's white privilege as accusation that had done the damage. That is what had shut my child down to this breakthrough concept. That is the way that he or she has most often heard it used. Most often. When I described it in its original form, that was clearly new information. Now on another day, when I asked another of my kids how they felt about the word privilege, that child of mine said, numb. Lest you get the wrong idea, I'm entirely confident and proud of the attitudes and understanding my kids bring to discussions of race. But if they respond to the word privilege in that way, they might be falling back into that old cartoon and seeing no hate in their own hearts, failing to recognize that they themselves are systemically privileged. Now, if that's the case, it's a pretty big miss on my part. It's not easy for me to admit that, by the way but at least I'm not alone. I've had several parents in recent months tell me the same story about their own kids, progressive to the teeth, but wincing at the word privilege. You know, we, we make this into a left-right thing. I'm not so much concerned about the right. Very few people who are really on the right are going to get this concept. I'm more worried that we progressives are dropping the baton in the handoff of a powerful concept to our own kids. Okay, I suppose I should end on a positive, so let's say I hope we can fix it. 
Okay, let me try that again. We can fix it. All it will take is first waking ourselves up to the real power of the word, just like Peggy McIntosh woke us up 30 years ago, and then letting our kids know how the concept has been mishandled so they can help restore the power. The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Raising Freethinkers. Thinkers.